0: Hey guys hey guys welcome back to another episode of the selfie show where we are bringing you the weekly dose of sweet and salty i am tori the founder and now co-host of the selfie show i am a nurse blogger and podcaster and i'm sam a nurse powerlifter, podcaster and
1: co-host of the selfie show today we are bringing you
0: honestly one of the most fire episodes yep that we've done we actually rearranged some lineups because we were like we have to get this out Like now, today, we have to get this out today.
1: Well, so we recorded this on Sunday and we're releasing it Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And that's how quickly we wanted to get it out to you guys. Because this has been such a heavy topic in the nursing community. But we actually have a malpractice attorney on today. And
0: yeah, it's good. And it's interesting. We'll get into why we brought her on. You guys will hear. But I just want to touch on this really quick. I just felt, I feel like this is such a good conversation for a global view on for us as healthcare providers we felt like in this particular conversation we wanted to hear from her side and also learn a lot today i'm telling you guys you were going to learn so much we had so much fun okay before we get into it with her though um this one we're just gonna do a quick rec because uh, both sam and i watched it shockingly and we both like have this we just can't yeah it was a good one netflix Hot white on the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, rise and fall. Holy smokes. Okay. That was my
1: entire existence in life. Yeah. I remember when Abercrombie came out, I wore an Abercrombie and Fitch shirt in my school picture. Sophomore year. It was white with blue. I actually just showed Tori a picture of me when I was 15 on a cruise with my best friend's family. We were in Mazatlan and I was drunk doing shots (laughs) it's really funny and there's a picture can you, you know, please post it on Tuesday that's fine post it so <laughs> in context it. to this episode <laughs> this is why I'm posting this it's a picture I'm literally 15 years old and you know when you do shots in Mexico and they shake your head around after the shot like yeah, super yeah. neurologically good idea <laughs> appropriate appropriate and I'm wearing a pink Abercrombie and Fitz shirt because at yes, 15 there is nothing in 2002 that was the pinnacle of fashion,
0: it's pretty iconic. Okay, so the Netflix documentary "Hot White Hot: The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch" came out April nineteenth and covered how the company thrived on promoting beauty standards that idealized thinness and whiteness and became uh, a part and came apart when employees began to call them out basically. The documentary features interviews from former Abercrombie executives, retail employees, as well as models. It's a really interesting, you know what's funny is like looking back on it and watching all of these very like 2000 vibes Mm -hmm. things going on. I'm like wow yeah, you know I definitely think that so much of the messaging you know on the all-American image and the models who you know grace the doorways and the smell and the lights and the loud music and I think just like the overall branding and the messaging was very very distinct and it's like we didn't realize like that was happening like I didn't realize that was no happening. not at all but I can tell you now
1: Abercrombie made me feel like absolute dog shit about myself right well yeah because when you're as not a that old I was very curvy I wore like a size fourteen yeah in jeans and I was not there ideal customer that they targeted or marketed to but growing up in orange county california yeah. that's what i mean i did not look like a lot of girls my age growing up in my demographic of where i went to school which is yeah white orange county mm-hmm. like size zeros yeah which was an abercrombie dream you were like
0: the kardashian in like that's, in this little that didn't exist oh, yet yeah, yeah, exactly. and it was
1: not appreciated <laughs> but i'm like watching this thing and i was i felt so triggered because i yeah. Was like yep everything they're saying is so true and
0: god that was probably really bad for my little 14 year old brain and mental yeah. health yeah well and we didn't you know we didn't realize so many of the things when we were growing up all the millennials right like we grew up in like that time when all that was so glorified and we're realizing how probably truly <laughs> toxic and ridiculous it was. Shit yeah and like i you know it's funny too thinking about the people that i know worked there uh yeah, they fit the images that they literally person. My best friend worked
1: there, but she's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: like I had friends whose brothers worked there and like it was like a thing where you wanted to work there for the summer. Like everybody wanted to Hollister, Abercrombie, like you know that whole like American mm-hmm. Eagle time when those were like the places to work and the things to do. I feel like
1: American Eagle was inclusive though because I would yeah, shop there because sure. I could buy like jeans that actually fit me at right. American Eagle and I could not at Abercrombie. Yeah. I don't think I ever owned a pair of jeans from there really,
0: just like t-shirts. Also like, I just, I'll just say this, too. I thought it was really interesting, like, the backstory with the photographer. You guys are going to have to watch if you haven't watched it. It's really interesting because the subtle messages uh, that you're going to learn about, which now that I think about it, are very, yeah, there's a lot of um interesting messages going it, on it's with It's interesting how they
1: figured out how to do loopholes of being discriminatory in the workplace, yeah. too, and, like, the lawsuit that went on and stuff. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a documentary. Really good.
0: Yeah. We especially for our age if you grew up in that era it's definitely <laughs> like wow yeah eye-opening for sure um okay unpopular opinion of the week
1: right <laughs> I will die on this hill people over the age of 65 I would argue 60 I said 65 you're being I generous to with I 65 am. I'm gonna even say they should not be able to run for office yes. like you dinosaurs absolutely <laughs> Honestly, and I'm saying that like my dad's over sixty, but right, I think we love my parents. dad is like out of I think he's like losing he's a little hey, we got a lot of amazing
0: moms out here who are listening, so this isn't a thing, but it's it's definitely something that I, I feel like anyone if you're at retirement age, sixty five yeah. or over, I really don't think you should be in office. Because well, you're
1: not of the working class anymore either. You're and you're so representing out of touch. people that you right. don't even like you're of retirement age. Absolutely. You're not of working
0: class age. And all the decisions and the things that you're doing in office, I truly feel like you're out of touch of what's going on with the true working class. The 20s, really affect 40s. you Absolutely. I mean, let's okay, let's just spit off a couple a couple of these, right? Joe Biden, 79 years old. Donald Trump, 75, Nancy Pelosi, 82, Vladimir Vladimir Putin, 69 years old. I'm like, let's just think about all these people as a whole i'm like uh, can we please just move on and get the generation that actually understands what's going on like why are we here in this sector like what that actually like knows how to use the internet yeah (laughs) like they probably like literally do
1: not know how to save a file as a pdf right they would yeah. have to like call in their millennial yeah.
0: coworker and be like
1: how do you save this that's as a, a little PDF? scary like i think about
0: my right like my dad's like 82 and i'm like the fact that there's people in office that age and i'm like i literally have to carry him through like doing things online i'm like no okay. we need to move on also
1: the constitution was writ- written in 1787 okay the average life expectancy back then was 38 years old
0: yeah so the question for that being is there an an age limit to run for president and currently legal requirements for presidential candidate have remained the same since the year that washington accepted the presidency well so they didn't think that people would be
1: living to be 79 yeah back then to even be considered to be running for president i think had the founding fathers known things yeah would have been a A little different because yeah. there's a minimum age requirement, and that makes sense. I don't think a twenty year old should be able to be president right. of the country or run for president. Thirty
0: five is a good. I think you have enough life experience. You've gone through some things. You've worked here. You've done that. Hopefully, so you've they done they put thought into it of saying like, yeah. hey, you need to have some sort of
1: requirements- to, to start to start. But I don't what think they end? ever had an idea that people would live this fucking long.
0: Right. That's a great great thing. I mean, I just think about you know also when you're that age like don't you just want to be done like don't you just want to like kick back and enjoy your life at that age anyways i'm getting like in real unpopular
1: opinion Um, i think a lot of people that age are honestly just like miserable Oh, they're like, and they're yeah, so content right. with it. Like, cause it's well, people all they've like ever that. known. People like that. I don't know. Like, I, yes, there's some very, I, I, I fucking love certain old people that are just like,
0: yeah, there's like some old people life. on
1: TikTok that are living their like best <laughs> life so and cute. I love them. But I did see this one. TikTok. I'm not an ageist. That's not what we're saying here, by the way. I want
0: to clarify that. We are not ageist. We're just saying for candidate positions. But
1: I will say there. my friend sent me this TikTok that was like, isn't it weird that like our parents generation has just accepted being. Unhappy or miserable is the standard, and they don't do anything about it to change it. They're like, therapy, mm. nah. Yeah, Mental health, nah. Sure like self-care nah like this is just the way it is and it's the way it'll always you know be what's and they so just funny. like dug their heels in the ground and I'm like that's actually she sent to me I was like it's so true I it's can think so of so true. many like older people that are just like accepted that like they're unhappy and they're just gonna oh my god stay I that way 100% forever. agree with
0: that okay so here's the thing my dad is very much that generation and he has very much that mindset however Lori the queen that she is she is my queen. mom oh my god so she kind of went through that like phase for a while and then now oh my god you guys she is living her best life she's over here on tiktok living it up and loving it she did a little procedure got uh, she she lost a bunch of weight because she was just at that point in her life where she wanted to do it and now she's a queen and she's so happy and she's living her life and she's just doing things that like rejuvenate herself and like trying new things and traveling and doing things with her girlfriend and i'm like i love this for you and we need more people of your generation to be doing that yes enjoy it take 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 your power back boomers yes (laughs) take your power back (laughs) but not for president yeah but also Get out of office. Yeah, I just, I, I, I agree. I think we have, we need to put an age limit on it. I really do think. I mean, I, you know, we all know what's going on with Joe Biden, and there's a lot of like, you know, things that are questionable. So, all right. right. Jinx. Jinx. Okay,
1: so this week we have Marley H. Willer. She's an experienced trial lawyer that has dedicated her practice to civil litigation. She focuses her practice on medical malpractice with a particular emphasis in obstetric negligence. Throughout her career, she has advocated for children and families in over 16 states across the country. Her firm has recovered millions of dollars collectively for her clients. She considers herself a true Bostonian. She received her education there and is working and living there for nearly 20 years. She prides herself on being a strong advocate for families and children that that have suffered birth trauma and who are often left in the dark and sent home without any explanation other
0: than that well these things happen they do happen okay We want to talk to you guys about this really quick. The main reason we really wanted to bring her on today is to learn. So Marley actually represents our patients and the families. And today we really want to understand the full picture and how we as health healthcare professionals can do better. Also get some questions answered. We answered her a lot or we asked her a lot of the questions that you guys asked in the book. We get into malpractice. We're getting into a lot of the things that we just we don't know about. We get into the fundamentals of the legal system and sort of what's what she answers just amazing things and you know, in terms of legal issues surrounding you know our profession, we work in a very high risk profession. So this is something that we felt we wanted to go straight to the source about, um, and then we also wanted to let you guys know, disclaimer, right? The information today on this podcast is provided for general information purposes only. The information contained in this episode does not constitute legal advice. No attorney-client privilege is being created in any capacity with Lyra, Willer Law LLC. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information including in this episode today without seeking appropriate legal advice on the particular circumstance at the issue from a lawyer licensed in the recipient's state, country, or other appropriate licensing jurisdiction. We wanted to just read this for you guys just so you know. This is educational purposes only. We love you guys. We will also be linking all of the resources that she provides in this amazing episode in the show notes as well. And with Without further ado, we are so excited to get into it with her today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We know you are a very, very busy woman. So, um, okay, well, let's just jump into it. The first question that we like to ask all of our guests before we hop in is, what is your unpopular opinion?
2: So when you guys sent this question to me, I was laughing because I don't know if I have an an unpopular opinion. I just feel like I'm the unpopular opinion for this episode. (laughs) Like, I'm not even exaggerating. I was laughing, thinking like... Here I am coming on this podcast, and I know that most of your listeners are probably medical providers and nurses, and so um, I feel like I might be the unpopular opinion of the day. Um, But, you know, I at least hope, I think in the beginning of my career, um, I, I kind of felt that like taboo, you know, when somebody asked me, oh, what do you do? And I said, I I am a medical malpractice attorney. I, you know, sue doctors. I sue medical Mm. professionals. I sue institutions. It was kind of like this taboo thing. Um, I have friends that are nurses, so many friends that are nurses. I have so many um, people that are in the medical world. And so I, you know, the one thing that I will say is before you kind of jump on that, you know, you need to understand my perspective, the clients, my clients, the ones that I represent. And I promise if if somebody were to spend a month um, following me around in the office, they would really understand what it is that we're trying to do here. Um, and for every one bad medical error that my client has, they have a team of lifelong doctors and nurses and medical professionals that treat them after this injury or mm-hmm. after the malpractice occurs. So. Um, we have a tremendous a tremendous respect for medical professionals here because they save our clients lives after you know this this traumatic event
0: yeah it's so funny that you say that too because i think that is the initial gut reaction to hearing this kind of episode but the interesting part is and sam and i both you know, we're talking about this we feel like this is actually one of the most important types of episodes we want to do because we like well-rounded perspectives and we want to learn How can we do better?
1: Well, even to kind of piggyback on your unpopular opinion, I fully believe that there is a place and for medical malpractice. And Mm -hmm. I've actually like encouraged my um, family member to pursue a case, a malpractice case in the death of one of my family members that once my aunt and myself were nurses and we're just going over, the course of everything that happened and i'm like obviously i'm not a lawyer or an attorney or anything like that but from the medical side i'm like you absolutely in my opinion are justified to at least pursue that obviously pursue legal representation that can better guide you in this but from my medical standpoint i feel that there was complete negligence and i think that um yeah it's hard because we're in a very litigious am i messing that word up um country and society and there's a lot of frivolous lawsuits and then there's a lot of lawsuits that are very valid so i think it just gives legal professionals a bad rap sometimes because we sometimes get all lumps together and it's like you know people the the frivolous lawsuits overshadow the ones that are truly valid and necessary yeah
2: Right. And I think that that's, you know, a good point, kind of what you're you're talking about when it comes to like frivolous lawsuits. I feel like medical malpractice is its own Mm -hmm. kind of subsection. I mean, it is a subsection of of personal injury and tort claims. Um, But you know, it does no good. Medical malpractice cases are so, so incredibly um, expensive for an attorney to bring forth. And, you know, I, as a plaintiff's attorney, so I represent the victims, I have to um, put up all of that money. So they, I don't get paid. I don't get paid unless I recover for the family or the individual. Um, I also don't have that individual paying the costs to litigate the case. So it takes... Um, a massive amount of my, you know, finances to up, up front this this case, mm-hmm. and so it does me no good taking a bad case. It takes me; it it actually hurts me in my business if I mm-hmm. take a frivolous medical malpractice case. So, I mean, um, you know, I, I think that that's something that other people. It's very different from other types of personal injury cases where you hear, you know, or you've heard the term like ambulance chasers or things like that. You know, I have so many hoops that I have to get past, um, you know, tribunals. I have to get medical experts. I have to, you know, do all of these things and put up all of this money up front. So if I don't think the case is a strong case, I mean, there's been situations where I've had people come to me plenty of times and say, tell me their story. And I'm like, wow, you got really bad medical care. Absolutely. But it wasn't to the point where I thought, okay, I can invest, you know, X amount of dollars into this and recover enough to make it time, make it worth not only my time, but also the family's time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's just another little thing that I, I always like to talk about when I'm discussing why attorneys or or why medical malpractice is a little bit different from other frivolous claims that are brought.
0: So it's really interesting because, um, so Sam and I were actually just talking about this. We found you recently on social media, obviously with, you know, everything kind of going on in the nurse world and the profession and healthcare and, and everything going on. And we absolutely, I fell in love with you just because I really liked your, first of all, your expertise. Um, And I felt like, you know, your response, you responded to something that we had posted in terms of I think it was the Redonda Bot case. And you were so well spoken on it. And I really liked your take. And so anyway, we really wanted to dig into you and ask you a bunch of questions. Um, We got quite a few questions from the listeners as well. Um, But let's get a little background on you, like your background, your beginning. Where did you grow up? How did you get into this?
2: Yeah. So um, I'm from a small town in Massachusetts, about an hour west of Boston. And it was funny when I was thinking about that, I feel like, you know, things I've learned growing up or, or things about me. And it's like, I have to take each piece of my life, like, different stages of my life, or, you know, when I was thinking back of when I was young, and what kind of shaped me there, um, you know, I have two older brothers, and, you know, in my household, at least from my brother's perspective, it was kind of like, if you can keep up with us, you can play with us. That was kind of like the rule. And so I always, I mean, I, you know, I was always awesome at sports. And it was because they literally like stuck me in a goal and, you know, shot balls at my head. And so it was like, I was just so pumped to be a part of that and be playing with them. And it was like, okay, I always have to keep up. And so I think that that kind of melted, you know, blended into the rest of my life as far as, being a young woman, um, in a, in a field where is predominantly male and just, I never had that thought of like, well, why can't I do that? You know, I always looked at my older brothers and like, I can keep up with them. And then that just kind of blended into the rest of, you know, schooling and then my education and law school and now litigating, you know, litigation especially is such a male dominated, um, Time so I was just kind of thinking of back when you asked that question of how that brought me to where I am and and I truly believe that just having two older brothers, you know, and me looking at them and thinking why can't I do what they do and I can keep up with them um, and so that's kind of what brought me to this thought of I, I and I'm sure watching my uh, or looking at my Instagram I'm very much uh, female. You know empowerment, and you can do you can do anything. So um, that's kind Mm -hmm. of where I started, and then I moved to Boston for undergrad and law school, and and I've been there ever since. Um, I started clerking at a a law firm that does medical malpractice. So that's where I kind of started the medical malpractice. Um, I I didn't go to law school thinking that this is what I was going to do. I started clerking at a law firm that does that, and I was assigned and worked heavily in uh, birth injury. So the birth injury cases, this particular firm got a lot of birth injury cases. And so I started working on those cases throughout law school and after being admitted into the bar. And I just was really passionate about these clients. I was passionate about the the children. I was passionate about the women um, and the the fathers and the families and kind of what they went through. Um, But it didn't really turn into like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career um, until I became a mom. You know, I connected with them on a level before becoming a mother um, as a lawyer and just somebody who tries to be as compassionate as I can with my um, clients. But I became a mom and it was what I did, I realized was so much more important than what I thought from, from before. Um, it's just, an, and I think that that's what draw, drew me to both of you, because I know that both of you, you know, work in the NICU and you work with the, you know, children and every one of my babies, everyone, and I call them my babies because I, <laughs> I mean that, like one of the clients, these clients are like in my head. I'm like, these are my babies, right? Every single one of my clients went through the NICU you know, and we're there. Um, and so you you care for these individuals. So that's why I was so drawn to both of you as well, um, because of your experience with, with the children. Um, but just that starting life like that, and being a mom, and, and being a father, and having a baby, and that being that first moment, that first moment of meeting your child, and um, it being so traumatic, and then really changes the trajectory of your entire life and your in um your child's life and it's it's devastating and I mean we'll talk more about that, but that's kind of yeah. where I got to where I am today. It's it's after I became a mom. I said, you know, I I don't want to even do anything else. Like this is what I want to do because it's so important to me.
1: Is uh birth injury still like a primary focus of the type of cases you take or what type of cases do you find yourself and yeah. class
2: do you represent? <sighs> So when I went out on my own, um, that was kind of what I was, I really wanted to niche down in that, and I wanted to make that my primary focus. I'll take other medical malpractice cases, but sparingly, um, and I'll take other personal injury cases, but sparingly. The the vast bulk of my cases are birth-related or pregnancy-related medical malpractice uh, cases.
1: Can we kind of like strip down to the basics for our yeah. listeners and just give them a brief overview of yeah. what, what is considered medical malpractice? Right.
2: Sure. Um, my other unpopular opinion was going to be that you'll, you won't you will really get yes or no from me. I mean, it's just, Perfect. I feel like, you know that meme with that kid that has like the vein popping yeah. out of their, yes. his head? at the computer That's, screen. That is what... Yeah, that's like a lawyer trying to answer a yes and no question. Like, that's their face. Like, everything you is always be a good like, lawyer. it depends.
1: You wouldn't be a good lawyer if you didn't <laughs> think that way because there's layers to everything. I know. You have to take a situation and be able to lawyer the shit
2: out of it. Right. It's just so, it's just funny because I'm always like, people must get so annoyed by hearing, it depends, or, well, you know, if this or that, no straight answer. But medical malpractice in its simplest form is really an act or an an omission um, that deviates from the standard of care of that specific specialty or whatever that medical provider um, does. Just for the standard of care, when we're talking about the standard of care, and I kind of have to explain this when I explain it to my clients is The standard is like the average qualified nurse in that um, specialty or whatever it is that they're doing or the average qualified obstetrician. It's not the standard isn't the best and the standard, you know, isn't the worst. It's just that average baseline. And did they deviate? Did they fall below that average baseline? So you can't expect when a patient goes to the hospital, you can't expect great care you can't expect the best care but you have a um you're entitled to that standard that average care
0: what are some just like from a general what are some injuries that result from medical malpractice like are this like the top ones that you you see or experience
2: yeah so when you look at like medical malpractice as a whole um the biggest uh kind of specialty or the the where most of them generate is surgical. So surgical errors. So somebody goes in for a surgical procedure, there's, you know, a perforation, there's they operate on the wrong limb, they do the operation, their technical skill in the operation is um, incorrect. And there's permanent damage afterwards that results or some sort of damage that results after that. In my world, um, I really do a lot of brachial plexus injuries, um, and HIE, which is then Mm -hmm. later diagnosed as uh, CP, so brain damage. Um, So there's a lot, and and brain damage goes across the board too, um, you know, not just in birthing uh, cases, but in other uh, medical malpractice issues as well. Uh, There's also a lot of misdiagnosis, so the misdiagnosis of a certain disease, um, which that misdiagnosis then leads to further damage or uh, even death. So, and a lot of death um, cases as well.
0: Can you break down, um, like, okay, when a client comes to you for malpractice, right, can you break down maybe, like, how it looks from a client from reaching out to you all the way to, like, subpoenas and, like, testifying, like, what does that kind of look like in in your world?
2: Yeah, so it can take, it's actually kind of an interesting... um, another thing that I have to really explain to a client is that it can take so long, you know, these cases, medical malpractice cases can take years sometimes from, you know, investigation all the way through completion. So typically what happens is they find you, they call you, they say, um, you know, I believe I've been a victim of malpractice or essentially that's what they're saying. But, you know, I went to the hospital and this is what happened. Um, and then it's my responsibility. I do like an investigation. I do first an intake where I listen to their story. Um, and I want to hear everything from, you know, past medical care, their history, their medical history, leading up to the incident, um, what occurred during the incident, and then a lot about the subsequent care. So, what are the damages? Um, because, in order for me, to bring a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit. So, you know, we'll talk about the Redonda case later on, and that's a, a criminal case. But everything that I do is civil. I'm always in civil court. And so um, what I'm trying to do is get compensation for the family for the malpractice.
1: Uh, can you just explain the difference between civil and criminal? Because this is what Tori and I were talking about sure. offline, where I was trying to kind of understand, explain. So, sure. in case other people don't understand the difference,
2: so the, the judicial system is made up into two two sections: the the civil section and then criminal section. So everybody is a lot more familiar with criminal section because it just gets a lot more attention, you know, that's the trials, those, um, and those individuals, you know, the consequences of that is obviously, you know, probations, fines, and imprisonment. Um, but the criminal system is brought, or who brings those cases, and when I say brings, I mean files it, you know, tries it, goes through all of those things, that's by the state. So a prosecuting attorney, the district attorney, um, you know, brings those cases. The civil side is, it's it's a monetary way of compensating somebody for uh, their injury. And so what happens is um, the victim of the malpractice, you know, person, the individual contacts me, they hire me, I'm a private attorney, I'm not a state attorney, I'm a private practicing attorney. Um, I personally work on a contingency fee basis, so there's lawyers that work hourly where you get retained for an hourly amount. They pay you by the hour. But I would say almost all medical malpractice plaintiffs, lawyers, so the person bringing the case, um, their contingency. So it's like I get a percent of whatever the ultimate recovery is. And I can work two years. I can work two years on the case and get zero If if I am not successful for them. I can put up thousands and thousands of dollars into the case and never get that money back. Um, so that was kind of going back to that risk analysis of why it makes no sense for me to take a case where I think it's frivolous, or I think that the care was fine. Um, so the second aspect of after they've, they've contacted me, part of my investigation is getting all of the medical records. Um, I get all of the medical records from really, honestly, I like to do it unless there's some major... Uh, health issue that I need to know that occurred prior to the incident. So I'm just going to use a birth case. Um, Unless there's a prior birth that is relevant, that I need those records. Um, You know, if it's a, a first time mom, what I do is I usually get the medical records for like a year or two prior to the incident. Okay. And then I get the whole prenatal and I get a, a, about a year of her prior, you know, medical health. So I can understand that. Um, I collect all of the records and then I, I have it, uh, internally reviewed with a nurse. Um, I have a, a legal nurse consultant that goes through the case with me. Um, I look at it from a legal perspective because what might look good from a medical perspective might not necessarily look good from a legal perspective. So we, we look at it from both, both points of view. If, the, if at that point, I believe it's a case that we file, we go through the process of filing that with the court. Now, this is where, you know, we could talk about this for hours because a lot of my practice, I, um, I go from state to state. Right. And I'm uh, admitted, it's something called pro hoc vice. So essentially what I do is I associate with another attorney in that state who's licensed in that state, and he or she vouches for me, and I petition to the court, and I say, uh, let me in on this limited appearance, okay? So every state's a little bit different. Um, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, we have to go before a tribunal, before we, even fi- before we even get past this into this, you know, we're doing discovery and depositions, we go before a tribunal, which is made up of a judge, a medical professional, and a lawyer. And I have to tell them why this is a case that's meritful and why I can continue on with the case. After we've filed the case, this thing called discovery happens. Now, discovery is the time in which, you know, I get to collect more information from all of the documentation. I get to depose or ask questions to. So I, a, a deposition is an under oath testimony where I um, can sit down with the doctor or, who, or the nurse or whoever it was, uh, lay witnesses, witnesses that were in the birth or, or whatnot. And I get to ask them a set of questions. Any, really, it's very broad, the amount of questions that I can ask them. And then they get to do the same for my client. And and then we get into the expert world. After that, all of the discovery is done with the parties. We get into all the discovery with the experts. So this is why I'm saying, I mean, I could continue. There's so much. And I think that this was kind of the point that I wanted to make with the the Vought trial is that there is so, 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 so much that goes in to civil cases um, and even criminal cases before trial. And then trial comes, and you get this much of it, right? right? Uh And it's the prettiest picture for that attorney. So I can spend two years, depose X amount of witnesses, have all of these medical records, thousands, literally thousands and thousands of pages of medical uh, records. I can have, you know, hours and hours of testimony, and then I, as an attorney, decide okay, what, what's the most important um, point I'm trying to make, and what do I want the jury to see? And then I wrap it up in my little box that fits my case, that fits my um, spin of the case, and that's what the jury sees. So with the the Vought trial, it's really hard to understand sometimes from even somebody like myself, who I'm not, it wasn't in the thick of it beforehand. I'm a, a licensed attorney. This is what I do. You know, but what you actually see at trial and what happened before, it, it's it's really, anything can be spun the way that you want it to be, you know? And I think that that's a really something that people kind of, not miss, but they listen to the trial and they think, well, why wasn't that said? Or why did that piece of, that, why right. did that document not not come in, mm. and those questions occur and those answers happen um, during the pre-trial fra- phase. So before we get to trial, judges make decisions about what's coming into evidence, who they're going to let uh, testify. You know, if it's an out of if. We we as um, attorneys can only subpoena people who are within a certain are within the state or within a certain distance from the court. Otherwise, I have to petition to the court and say, "Hey, listen, I need to get you know Susie Smith from across the country, and I need you to permit me to do that." So there's a there's a whole host mm-hmm. of reasons, um, and choosing medical experts. And I know that there was a question about you know, the, the horrible medical uh, expert that was used in this case um, for the VOD case. And, and you know, I, I listened to the podcast. You're absolutely right. There's there's a million reasons why she was the only one that they could probably find, you know. Um, I've had cases in Tennessee before, civil cases, and Tennessee, and I'm not sure if it's um, the same for criminal, but at least in the civil case. I cannot have a medical, uh, the medical professional that I need to come to testify in Tennessee, has to be uh, practicing within what's called a con- the contiguous state. So it, that they need to either be practicing in the state of Tennessee, or the surrounding states. And you guys, I think, hit the nail on the head. Um, medical professionals don't want to testify against other medical professionals in their state. So I'll have experts that are willing to testify for me, you know, outside of the state of Massachusetts, but they're like, no, I'm not doing it in state. And that makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? Because it's like, you know, maybe you have to see... Exactly. I and mean, maybe yeah. you have to see that person at a, at an event or, yep. or what not. So, <laughs> so finding, finding medical professionals and experts are, um, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation and you want somebody who's kind of been a block, around the block sometimes. Um,
0: but they're still they, relevant. They know, yeah. Correct. Right. It's yeah. So,
2: I mean, there's, there is how do you find
1: your like medical experts Are there certain yeah like certifications they have to hold or criteria or how does someone even be decide i'm an expert witness like if i wanted to be one like how how does that even happen okay before we get into that
0: we just want you to work smarter not harder. Absolutely. You guys know we love Picmonic. This is an audio visual learning platform designed for all healthcare students from RNs, MDs, DOs, CNAs, LPNs, NPs, and the like. It is a study tool of choice for learning thousands of the most difficult to remember and most frequently tested topics. It's used by over 1 million healthcare students
1: worldwide. It is Interactive digital flashcards for students and it helps increase
0: retention by 331 percent, which is insane. They are quick and effective two minute mnemonic videos, they connect and build to remember facts with unforgettable characters, tie the facts all together so they're ridiculously memorable for you guys. They help reinforce what you learn and track your progress with thousands of built in, rapidly review multiple choice quizzes. This is just amazing. We could not recommend this anymore. I have used it. I am a huge fan of this resource tool. Join over 1.3 million students who use their quick and effective picture mnemonic study aids to boost performance in school. They also have an NCLEX workbook and nursing cheat sheets
1: to pair with their app for NCLEX prep. Um, As a nursing professor,
0: (laughs) 10 out of 10 recommend. Do it. Absolutely. So head over to picmonic.com, that's P-I-C-M-O-N-I-C.com, and use the code SELFIE, C-E-L-L-F-I-E, for 20% off the subscription. Again, that's picmonic.com, code SELFIE, C-E-L-L-F-I-E, for 20% off your subscription.
2: So that's kind of another interesting thing is, um, it's not, you know, when we hear the word expert, we think, well, they're an expert in their field, right? They must be, when I have an obstetrician come and testify, um, you know, they might, people might think, oh, he's an expert obstetrician, right? He's the best obstetrician, you know, in the country or whatever. And so term expert is really a legal term when it comes to obtaining a, a expert witness. That expert goes to the fact that it is a witness that has scientific uh, knowledge about whatever issue it is that you're having to come testify. So they don't need to be an expert obstetrician, but there's lay witnesses and there's expert witnesses. So anybody who has the medical knowledge would be considered and is coming to testify to give opinions on the standard of care or cause, you know, that's an expert. Um, Because I know that that this particular one, they were like, she's definitely not an expert. Well, no, she might not be an expert, but she was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a nurse that has been practicing and has the ability to comment on what the standard of care is. So how I go about finding um, an expert is, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways, uh, word of mouth um, and, you know, me reaching out to individuals, uh, me reaching out to treating uh, providers, um, you know, so I can say, oh, hey, you know, you treat my client um, for this injury that she sustained, you know, would you be willing to talk to me about this? And sometimes treaters are willing to come and testify on behalf of their um, clients. And then there's, um, a, for me at least, I've just been in this world for so long. Um, you know, names are are passed around, right? So, other attorneys will have used a specific expert and said, "Oh, I, I really liked this individual, or I really liked that individual," um, and then. I provide them with the records and whatever it is that they need to formulate an opinion, and then they tell me their opinion. And sometimes, you know, they say, no, I couldn't have done anything differently, right? The, there's that other kind of assumption that if I send an expert a case that really only works with plaintiffs' lawyers, um, they automatically will give me a favorable opinion, right? They'll say, yes, I can support this case. But a lot of times it doesn't necessarily work like that. There'll be some, sometimes where I'm like, this is a, a, this is a case where I think um, she received really poor care. And then I send it to the uh, expert and they said, I don't think she received good care, but I can't prove, or I can't come and, and they have to testify. They Call it to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. I can't testify that that is what caused this injury. So, that's kind of another point that in, in medical malpractice cases is so important um, to talk about is that I don't, I have two pieces of the puzzle that I have to prove in order to bring my case. I have to prove that number one, the provider fell below the standard of care and deviated from that breached it you know did not provide good care number 1 but then i also have to prove that that care that they received my client received caused the injury so there'll be certain situations where a doctor will absolutely fall below the standard of care do something wrong but it didn't cause an injury or it caused the patient to be you know in the hospital for 2 months instead of two weeks but there's no long lasting cause I can't help them because I as I have to prove both there has to have been negligence and there it has had to have been the cause of the injury
1: so how often do these actually just reach a settlement out of court versus go to trial
2: the bulk the bulk bulk. and I don't know what the I don't know what the figure is I at, at one point um I did, and I don't want to necessarily quote, but the vast majority, the vast majority, like well over 50 or 60%. So I'm thinking, you know, settles, um, only like 10% make it to trial, if, if less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the bulk settle, the other percent go to trial, and then the other percent either get dismissed, um, the party gets dropped, or other things kind of happen for whatever reason. Um, you know, the lawyer makes a mistake, the statute of limitations has run, other things. Um, it gets, the court makes the decision. So it's, it's a very small percent that actually make it to trial.
1: Also, when filing a civil suit, how often, like, who is it actually being filed against? Is it sometimes a combination of the institution, the physician, DO, actual like prescribing medical provider, and then the nursing side of it. So is it kind of sometimes just one, all of the above? What kind of goes into making that decision?
2: Sure. So, I mean, what goes into making that decision is really um, who who is the responsible party providing the care that caused the injury, okay? So when we look at like in a birth case. Okay. So like an HIE case, um, you know, a lot of times, and we, you know, we were talking about in my practice where, you know, you asked me a question about uh, most common medication errors. So we'll use this kind of as an example, but um, in my world, the most common medication error is, you know, pit to distress. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard that, that word before, but you've got a mom that comes in and they literally give her, they induce her, you know, and they, they just pump either, you know, cytotec or Pitocin in so much that this baby is under complete distress and they fail to properly monitor her, they over-medicate her, they don't bring it back, or maybe they bring it back because they realize baby is not tolerating it well, but they continue to failure to monitor that baby and the baby suffers catastrophic brain damage and, God forbid, death. Um, So in a situation like that, sometimes, a lot of times, it's the attending, it's the obstetrician that either has ordered that. um, And when it comes to nursing, right, it's if they didn't follow the amount that they were supposed to administer, or they failed to uh, notify doctor, right? So mom's been laboring for like four or five hours, strips, absolutely horrible, they don't notify the doctor. Um, But even in those situations, it's really, we really sue the hospital. We don't, I didn't, I, I, typically we yeah. don't individually name the nurses. We usually sue the hospital and then under the suit of the hospital, it's any agents, employees of the hospital. Now, doctors are typically independent contractors at the hospital. So then we identify the doctor as well. Um, or whoever, whatever doctors were a part of that care. Um, And a lot of times we sue everybody that we think has a a role in this. And then as the case develops, sometimes people are dismissed out, right? So it's like, okay, as we develop the case, we have depositions, we have um, more testimony, we have expert witnesses, and we realize, okay, this is the person that's most responsible.
1: Yeah. I have friends that like have sat for depositions and yeah. then have never heard anything ever again. Of, they have no right. idea whatever happened to it. They just, they did their deposition and then they never heard a thing again.
2: Yeah. Exactly. And a lot of times, I mean, they could have just been, um, you know, the nurse providing the care and not involved any, in any way, but witnessed what was going on, can testify about the patient and and the facts of the case. Um, Other times, She might or he might not have been individually named, but it was the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. It was the hospital that was named, and that's the person that is usually named in the lawsuit. Um, You know, other states, you know, in Massachusetts, it's tough because hospitals have, a lot of hospitals in the state have this thing called charitable immunity. So there's only, um, I'm capped at a certain amount of money that I can recover from these institutions that make billions of dollars. Because they're charitable, so in Massachusetts, right. a charitable immunity is capped at one hundred thousand dollars, which is insane. That's insane. Insane. So right. So what I have to do is I really have to find the coverage. I have to see um, who's re- most responsible and is there proper coverage, um, and identify the doctors. And a lot of times, doctors have well, most times, and at least in Massachusetts, other states don't require medical professionals to carry malpractice insurance. So, you know, that's another thing, um, which will leave, you know, families completely out of luck and trying to tell somebody who, you know, has suffered a a child with a brain injury, geez, I'm sorry, there's no coverage. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the most horrible things I have to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but doctors usually carry like million, $3 million in coverage, Um, And then the hospitals uh, have their own insurance as well. And depending on who's at risk or at fault.
0: I didn't even realize hospitals could do that, could cap it. Okay. Let's dig into that question really quick because we know the one question everybody wants to know. This was the number one question we got. I don't know if we can dig into this with you too much, but um, in terms of nurses, right. Versus doctors versus hospital um, for practicing nurses, there's 4.3 million of us. Do you think it is wise to carry your own malpractice insurance? And the reason I'm asking this is because kind of like what you're saying, there's a lot of mixed reviews on whether it's necessary or not. I'm hearing, yes, definitely do it because it could carry, it could cover, you know, in theory, your um, attorney fees. It could do, you know, whatever you may need in the situation. And then I'm also hearing it's not a good idea because then they, then the other side would say, well, they're carrying a policy. So then we'll go after the policy. Like, what are your thoughts on this? Just generally, like,
2: yeah, so I mean, I think this is the biggest it depends question. Right. Um, but I think, for, for, first of all, first of all, from a lawyer's perspective, I mean, I, you know, I think lawyers are probably the most over insured individuals on, the, you know, like, mm-hmm. I walk around in my life, and I'm like, that's a hazard. That's a hazard. I could be sued for this. I could be sued for that. Like, I catastrophize everything. Like, my brain works in that way now that I've just been, you know, doing this for so long. But I think what you first need to do is you need to, like, assess your own risk. And what are you comfortable with, right? So what assets are available if someone were to sue you and you weren't covered? You know, are you comfortable with that? Um A lot of times what I would recommend a nurse doing is whoever they're employed by, they can obtain um, a copy or ask risk management for a copy of their coverage. So a nurse working at a hospital should be able to know, okay, am I covered for medical negligence? And if I am, what is it how much is it for? You know what does that cover? Um, and, and get a baseline of that. I think that's something that it's important for nurses to know and nurses to understand. The second um, thing that I would say about that is it only when you're if you're insured if your hospital or wherever employer you work for has malpractice insurance, they will represent you and pay for the cost of defense okay so it's not just oh they'll pay out the million dollars or whatever it is that they have that you're covered for under their insurance but they have to pay they provide you an attorney that attorney represents you throughout the civil lawsuit and then you don't have to pay for the cost of defense and there was a there was kind of this thought of well you know the hospital's lo- the hospital lawyer is going to look at me and treat me differently right because they're going to want to do whatever in the best interest of the hospital versus me just and you know a nurse but when a lawyer is assigned to you or you uh, for a specific case they have an ethical duty and they're Professional licenses at risk if they don't do what's in the best interest for you. You are their client. The nurse is the client. So, um, you know, there, and, and if they're not, if there's ever a situation where you're assigned an attorney, you get a defense and it's through your employer, and you feel as though that attorney is not putting your best interests um, ahead of this case. I mean that's that's a bad that's bad faith against the insurance. I mean that's a that's a whole separate lawsuit, right? Um, and I think for getting the insurance, it's it's not going to necessarily give you much more if your insurer is already if you're already under your insurer's malpractice. The only situation that it might give you more is if um, you're going up against the your licensing board, because mm-hmm. sometimes that's not covered, right? Um, and it's, what's never going to be covered is a criminal action. Okay. So getting, you know, getting medical malpractice insurance, uh, is not going to save you or provide you with, um, criminal coverage. So, you know, even if, um, you know, Redonda Bot had additional coverage, right. Okay. I don't think her position was gonna is gonna change at all.
1: Can I ask a clarifying question about that? Um, so that sure. would maybe if she had had that, it would have maybe supported her through her process with the Board of Registered Nursing for her state and with the criminal or with the malpractice like civil lawsuit. But as far as then once it went to the criminal side, that's she's once. on her own at that point. Got it.
2: Yeah, correct. Okay, I just they want to don't, make sure they, I understood that right. Yeah, insurance companies will not cover you for criminal actions. Um, and and the problem is it's like criminal actions. It's like, well, we do. am I even, you, you know, you're not found criminally charged yet, but it's just they're just not going to cover you. They're going to cover you with things that are within the scope of your employee, employment for civil purposes, really. That's why you have insurance. It's the same with, like, car insurance, right, is if you accidentally kill somebody um, when you're driving a car. Like, your car insurance will, uh, you know, handle the civil side of that lawsuit, but they're not going to handle the criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the interesting thing about uh, the timeline for the Vought trial um, is that in Tennessee, so in Tennessee, you have to do what's called a pre-suit notice. So before I file a, a lawsuit with the court in Tennessee, I have to send a letter um to the hospital or the risk management of the hospital, the registered agent, and I have to say to them, listen, I'm going to sue you because of all of these reasons, and I have to lay out the reasons and provide them with a authorization form to obtain my client's uh, medical records. And you've got 60 days to get back to me before I file a lawsuit. And then. You after that sixty days expires, you file the lawsuit. The interesting thing about the the bot trial is that it, it never was filed in court civilly because my thought process my thought process is right. It happens in December. They get a attorney. You know January. The, the attorney sends notice to the hospital at Vanderbilt saying we're going to sue you because of this. And and Vanderbilt looks at it and is like, yep, we're done. Like, they have an out-of-court negotiation. They settle the case. They know that this was, you know, medical negligence, (laughs) right? Really bad. And so they say, we're going to settle the case. And so the problem is, is that she was covered underneath Vanderbilt. But it happened so fast, and they settled it so fast that then everything else after they fired her is kind of like, well, we already settled the civil case, and you're we're not covering you for the remainder of the, the nursing license hearings, the investigation by the bureau, the criminal trial, all of those things. Then at that point, she doesn't have anybody, but they wouldn't represent her through that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought that that was kind of interesting, and yeah. and you know, in Tennessee, there's there's all these caps on damages again so in wrongful death which this would kind of fall fall under you know you're capped at a million dollars and so you know the the family the, who knows and then punitive damages so there's there's all these different types of damages right there's pain and suffering which goes under non economic damages Then there's economic damages, which would be future medical bills, um, lost wages, things like that. Um, And then there's punitive damages. A punitive damage is you did something so bad, we're going to punish you for it. And a lot of places, you can't get punitive damages for certain cases. Um, In Tennessee, you can, but it's either $500,000 and then two uh, uh, two times the uh, economic damages or non-economic damages. So my thought process is like the max the family could have probably recovered is somewhere in the 3 million range. And that's including punitive. So I don't even know. Punitive damages are very difficult to get in civil cases. So I'm thinking Vanderbilt saw this as an opportunity to get out really quick and really fast, pay it's not a tremendous amount of money for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 was it. They're like, okay, this is going to this is going to go away. And she was fired. And then, um, you know, the rest is history. And I think we you know, we'll talk about a few few more of my thoughts on that, um, that issue. But I think that that's kind of in my in my opinion, that was what they The interesting. The Mm -hmm. interesting timeline was, you know this might not have been anything if it was a a civil case that went longer and longer and, you know, um, materialized differently. But Mm -hmm. once that settlement is agreed to it's that's done. And the family, um, whoever brought the case so that the person that would bring the case is the administer, um, of, of the estate of the deceased. So whoever is the administrator, I think, um, there was a spouse, that likely the person that brings brings the suit, um, but then within the release, there's usually confidentiality clauses. Nobody can talk about it after it happens. Um, so mm-hmm. it's just it's it was just kind of interesting, yeah. And 99999 percent of the time, which is why you know this was so rare. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, the civil case happens. There's a payment. Everybody goes home. That's the
1: end of it, right? That was literally going to be my next next question: was how unprecedented is it for something to turn criminal? Like and this. I mean, they kind of answered that. It's so yeah. rare. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's why everyone so was so rare. shook by Shots.
0: it. We're, yeah, this is absolutely right.
2: Right.
1: So, what you know, I think can we it's get your 32- thoughts Yeah, go
2: ahead. Oh.
1: No, I just I would love to get your thoughts on on it becoming a criminal right. trial.
2: So, I mean. I don't, I'm, I am an advocate for, uh, victims of Mm -hmm. malpractice, right? Right, right. And I think that the civil, uh, process that we have in our country is the best that we're going to do at rectifying a situation like this. And it's not a good, it's not a good solution, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody goes home, even after, you know, even even when these things are settled, you know, when I ask a parent, oh, would you rather have, you know, $10 million or $3 million or a healthy baby? Mm-hmm. You know right. the answer. It's like every time nobody mm-hmm. wants to be in that position. The medical providers don't want to be in that position. They don't want, even when there's a mistake, they don't want to be in this position, right? Nobody wants to be in that position, but it's the best that we have. Um, and, I just don't think criminally prosecuting medical providers moves the ball in any direction, right? I don't think it corrects system failures of hospitals. I don't think that it provides any additional uh, solace or closure for a family. Um, and I've never been a victim, so right, so I can't necessarily speak for them, but. I don't think that it's going to make them feel better because I know how they feel after a civil lawsuit, Mm -hmm, you know. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to make them feel any better about this. And I don't think it's going to uh, promote better care from the individual providers, you know, because they're already remorseful, right, and they're already like most of them, I would say. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I, I just don't think it moves the ball. I don't think it moves the ball for in any direction. So th- this is just non. I, I can't for the life of me figure out um, what this district attorney, why he chose this p- specific instance because thirty-two percent or something ridiculous, like thirty-two percent of medical malpractice cases, which are under the heading of medication errors, right? So I'm only talking about medication errors, result in death. So this is not uncommon, right? Like this is not uncommon. Out of all of the medication errors, and there's a lot of medication errors that are occurring every single day.
0: I was just about to ask you that. Like, Do you have like a little off the top of your head, the most common, I'm just curious. Because I I personally, I'm like, I want to learn as much as I can from you and and how to be a better provider. do you have, you know, what are the top ones you're seeing?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, mine, mine, the one that I, the one that I see most is this um, overuse of Pitocin, right. And over, over inducing a mom, mom's got hyperstimulation of the contractions. Baby's heart rate is just nose diving, never comes back baby. You know, it's like, we saw this coming. We saw this coming for hours. Right. Um, But you know, there is a report, and I'm happy to send it to you, the report that's done um, so that your listeners can can look at it, because mm-hmm. I'm all about statistics and seeing that. But, you know, insurance companies, they, they'll do, like, benchmark reports of the last however many years, and it shows you, you know, an assessment of what types of cases um, are being what types of providers and what types of cases are being seen in medical malpractice. Um, and out of those me- medication errors, you know, I saw that only, I think, uh, 13% of all of the medication errors were uh, nursing errors, wow. were the rep- responsible party, in yeah. other words. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. The other breakdown of it, it goes from like, where is the issue? Where where are the medications kind of happening here, and what they found was um, the number one was the management management of the medication was improper. So that was kind of the the dis. dis example that I kind of gave you. The second was ordering of the medication. So it was either there was a miscommunication between the medical provider and the pharmacy or the pharmacy and the medical provider or a miscommunication with an abbreviation of a drug or what have you. So that was the second. And then administering it was the third and the fourth was dispensing it. So they come up with this, um, you know, report where it shows you What's happening? You know, what's the most likely things that we're seeing? Why is it happening? And, and what can be done to help this? And I think what I saw is just not even, it just goes through um, all of my cases, not just the medication cases that I have, but all of the cases. What they always kind of find, which is consistent with this report, is there being a miscommunication somewhere right? There's some sort of miscommunication that's that's happening, and there's policies and procedures that are being overlooked, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's policies and procedures that hospitals and doctors have that they, um, you know, have to, to make sure that these things don't happen, and they're not being followed. And so what are we going to do to fix that, right? Are we going to have uh, more training? Are we going to have more simulations? Are we going to have um, stricter policies for drugs that might have extremely adverse reactions or, or what have you. And I think that that it's it's getting those those procedures and policies in place, but then it's also enforcing them, right? So there's like two things here. Right. like you can you can do it all you want. You can say that you're doing it all you want, but kind of like this Vanderbilt thing, if you're not enforcing it, right. if you're not actually following it, you know, this is bound to happen. And we see that it happens because the data is telling us that it happens in this way. So um, that's kind of from, from my perspective. And the other issue that they talked a lot about is, um, you know, failure to take histories and read the chart. There's a yeah. lot of that going mm-hmm. on. And I hear that in my cases all the time, you know, doctor comes in, you know, flips through it like this Mm -hmm. and then treats the patient. Right. And maybe Mm -hmm. there was something that was in there that they should have looked at, or maybe there was some sort of prior history or uh, allergy or whatever that they needed to know about. And and that kind of comes across my desk a lot. So better communication, more simulations, more training, Mm -hmm. speaking up. I mean, I have so many nurse friends. Um, I've got so many, clients um that you know oh the nurse was telling me this like the nurse was telling me that this was going to happen or the nurse was there who was there bedside with me for 24 of my you know 24 hours of my delivery and then the doctor was there for two Mm -hmm. not even two right 15 minutes comes Mm -hmm. in and tells the nurse she's wrong you know so tells the nurse oh yeah I I've I watched. I was watching the strips in the other room. They're fine, and the nurse is like, "Yeah, I don't fine. think so, right?" right? right, right. Um, or there's a situation where you know moms had a, an arrest of descent, and baby's not doing well, and the nurse is like, "This is a ten pound baby," and the doctor's <laughs> like, "Nope the uh, ultrasound the ultrasound says the baby is eight pounds, and uh, it's going to be fine." Well, what happens? Baby gets stuck, and you know, God forbid, you know, has a horrible brain injury um, or permanent brachial plexus injury. So I I think speaking up is a really big thing. Chain of command. You know, I've got a lot of cases where there's chain of command uh, issues or there's times where a nurse was, um, didn't feel comfortable, you know, instituting this chain of command and going above the the person that's providing the care. Um, and I just think that now, given everything that's going on, um, I just think if, if there's something that you disagree with, I and I can't get into the politics of it because I've never worked yeah. there, right? I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy to go to a medical provider who's dismissing you and saying, you know, I, I disagree with you. Um, but the 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 person who's at the bedside for a really long time uh, in my experience when i'm talking to these people a lot of them um know what they're talking about that's number one and then number two if it's a if it's a nurse that um it's the primary responsibility was with the nurse it's oftentimes because that nurse was not properly trained right not properly trained or wasn't didn't have enough support um and either had, a, I've received personnel files, right, where it says, you know, they were just, dis, they discussed this and that and the, the nurse wasn't followed up with proper training. It's like, how are you going to tell that person that they're doing something wrong, not follow up with the training? And then it, what is it, on him or her? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. A commu- communication, proper charting. That's what um, I'm actually, i actually ask always you thing.
0: really quickly. Cause I do think, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I feel like one of the biggest things that you mentioned is, you know, how far out in terms of time that these cases can really go and the importance of charting. Like, is there any, maybe like highlights or tips you have for, especially, you know, healthcare providers in the, in terms of like the importance of that or, what do you see just, in your cases? I,
2: I mean, I just think being thorough, right? Being thorough, double checking, making sure that you are writing down what it is you're doing when you're doing it and how you're doing it and charting that and um, double checking, double checking things. And, you know, there's, you know, with the with the bot trial, I know that we're, we're wrapping up. And so that the one thing that really honestly broke my heart, I'm telling you, it broke my heart was she waived her right for an attorney when the, uh, the Bureau of uh, the Special Agent for Fraud investigated her, okay? And at that point, um, what had happened was they had already settled the case. October, there's the whistleblower, right? she's fired so she hasn't she probably has no knowledge about any of this she's like I don't know I, I was fired and then the nursing board tells me I'm fine and I've moved on she's got no knowledge of this but then the investigator comes in and tells her that she has um, a right to an attorney and she waves it and and she just, Mm, She says so many things that later on, you just, once that's there, there's nothing Mm -hmm. that an attorney can do after that. So here's my point. I don't care if you had nothing to do with it. I don't care if you weren't even in the hospital. I don't care if you were in Europe when the incident occurred. If you are getting brought in for an investigation, have an attorney. You don't need medical malpractice insurance to hire or even be afforded the right to an attorney. It says it and she tells her there. If you don't, if you want an attorney, we'll go get you an attorney right now. You know, it, I know it's because in you know, she's like I I I am telling the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So what do I have to be afraid of? But these are when people are investigating you and interrogating you, they're professionals. They're professionals at asking questions. And even if you've done nothing wrong, they, they're they getting facts that later your attorney has to deal with, whatever that looks like. So let's say you're, you don't get medical insurance. You're, you're a nurse. You're like, I'm not going to pay for the insurance, which is actually not that expensive to get additional insurance for yourself. But let's say you don't do that. Or let's say, God forbid, you're in a criminal situation. Um, get an attorney. If even if you have a civil case you don't and you don't like the attorney, you can get a personal representative on top of that. So there's there's always the opportunity to get represented, even if you don't carry insurance. So just keep that in mind. Um, that really for me was the end of the case. Yeah. Oh and two things. Two things. The decision the decision to Prosecute hers number one. Okay, this doesn't happen. I looked up two other situations. Um, one happened in '99. The nurse was acquitted, um, but two of the other responsible nurses did plead guilty. That was in Denver. If you want to take a look at that, and then in Wisconsin, same thing. Uh, both both patients passed away, and the nurses were um, prosecuted. Um, and then the second one in Wisconsin, she pled guilty. In, and uh, receive probation. So I can only hope that um, the sentencing will be similar in this situation, but you can all, always get an attorney, always get an attorney um, after
0: if you're going to be investigated like that. What about just a general question too? If you're called, because we did have this happen a couple of times with friends who were called in for testifying or even if you're subpoenaed, do you think it's a good idea? Like for me, I feel like if if I was ever in that case, in my head, I would always say I want an attorney. Is that just, like, do you think that's just a good idea? Like, they say, hey, we need a subpoena. We, you need to come in and, you know. So if why. if you what get you a mean? subpoena,
2: it's usually going to come from your risk management. So your risk management, if you're getting a subpoena, a subpoena on a case that you were um, in some way, you know, a part of, you're going to have that attorney be the one to provide you with that it's rarely if it shows up on your doorstep you call your your employer you call risk management and you say what am I supposed to do with this do I have an attorney um, am I going to be represented in this situation and a lot of times you will be through your employer if you're not if you're not if for whatever reason um, and you know I'm, I'm not sure there might be another reason or if I, I, I the only thing I'm not quite sure about is traveling nurses mm-hmm. um, haven't seen too many of that across my desk but anyway, If you don't have an attorney, certainly, certainly get one. Um,
1: Would it be of your best interest to like, okay, the hospital attorney's there, but like I would still like to bring my own?
0: Is that smart? Again, I
2: think, I think it depends on, I think it depends on the facts of the case. If, if you are um, potentially liable in any way, and if you were potentially liable, is it under your coverage through your employer? So those are the questions that I would Mm -hmm. ask. You know, Mm -hmm. am I potentially liable and if i am potentially liable is are, are you representing me as that individual um and and most of the time the hospital will be named and if not they're still going to represent you in that in through your employer
0: holy smokes you are amazing really. i i, I have can't... so i feel like we didn't even touch i feel like i, know, I have so I mean, much more to talk to you about I know, is there like I know, a one
1: good other like last thing you do yeah. want to talk about yeah. though because uh. i honestly i could make this like a like you said a whole series with you yeah you know what? <laughs> oh, maybe for sure.
0: maybe we should i mean i think marley maybe down the line we should do another one um happy to send you um those reports because i just think it's i think it's good for
2: uh, people don't even know that they're out there do you know what i mean mm-hmm, like people right. don't even know that some we of didn't. this information exists like it, for example, these two reports exist, so you can take a look and say, "Okay, what's what's going on in the world of malpractice for the last ten years? They do a trend for the last ten years. How many, how much? You know, the, the responsibility out of all of the cases, only like like I said, thirteen percent or nine percent were nurses were the responsible party. So it's mm-hmm. it's a small percentage that might feel be reassuring. Um, take a look at that." You know, the entire discovery file for the bot trial is public. You can go look at that. There's a lot of, and that's where I found that she waived this right. And she talks about the problem there. Is she talks about um, she wasn't overtired. She, They weren't understaffed. They weren't, you know, all of these things that hospitals right now, nurses are talking about, which is true, right? Mm-hmm. You know, th- they don't have the proper support, they're understaffed, they've got a bajillion patients, and they can't keep up with it. But she went and then she testified to that. And then, you know, they're, you're stuck with it, you're stuck. Mm-hmm. Once you make a testimony, once you say it, you're stuck with it.
1: Do you think on a systemic level from Vanderbilt, like I know they settled, but do you think based on like what happened at a systemic level? It's just so weird that it ended is, up going criminal. Do you
0: think this is setting a precedent? Do you think yeah. like this- I, Right.
2: So I, I don't. I eh, I don't want to say that, right? right, right. I, I hope not. But based off of the last, you know, 20 years and based off of, you know, the the very small amount of cases. And we're talking again, we're talking about uh, negligent, criminal negligence. We're not talking about intent or, you know, there are situations where doctors, you know, are doing very strange things, right, that Mm -hmm. amount to negligence, criminal. We're we're just talking about pure medical negligence being brought as uh, criminal. It just doesn't really happen. Um, And, you know, when I saw that that those two cases with the nurses, the one in Denver and the one in Wisconsin, um, you know, that was 1998 to twenty seven uh, two thousand and seven, and then now we're you know twenty twenty two. I can only hope that it's it's one of these things where it happens every so often, right? For whatever reason, a district attorney, and they're the ones that makes makes the decision on who and when they're going to criminally charge someone. And so that's, that's another important fact is that, you know, in addition to all of the work that nurses are doing, as far as getting regulations and getting the support that they need, um, you know, look up, there's only four states where a district attorney is uh, appointed versus elected everywhere else. It's, it's by election. So be involved in your who is my district attorney like who's going to be this person and what are their thoughts as far as criminally prosecuting medical professionals my my feeling is this is few and far between it rarely happens i hope that it doesn't happen again i don't think that it will it got a lot of really bad press i'm thinking when this district attorney is up for re-election it's hopefully not going to happen um which is coming up so we'll see I think a lot of the decision, it, it's unfortunate because I think it, it's political, right? So mm-hmm. some of these these decisions become political versus about the, the actual care that's being received, about yeah. the actual patient. I do feel as though, you know, it, it still will remain rare. I don't think it's going to become a commonplace, mm-hmm. and I hope not. Um, yeah. But that's mm-hmm. kind of my... Yeah, I think that's just a lot of the fear that. from
1: some of our new of listeners that are coming new into the profession and they're like coming into a time where we're coming off of a, we're still oh, wow. winding down from a pandemic and then mm-hmm. cases like this and it scares them. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure.
2: absolutely. And the interesting one about the, the the nurse that was acquitted was the hospital was took a very, very active role in supporting this nurse um, through everything. So it's just kind of an interesting yeah. look at... Um, how Vanderbilt kind of was like, See you later, and then they're this situation paying for it now.
1: They, they cannot yeah. they can't find staff. staffing, yeah, they have $25,000 $25, bonuses, sign on bonuses, and right. they still can't fill those positions because people don't want to go where they're not going to be supported. supported. Yeah, right, even from not a criminal sense, I would want to be supported even in a civil sense, right. let alone right, criminal. And so. I think that
2: that's the scary from like the patient's perspective, too, right? Yeah. And it's like, Is it the chicken or the egg? Mm-hmm. Like, what comes first, you know? because. It's like these lawsuits and then but then if we don't do anything to fix it, uh, there's going to be more poor care because there's just not going to be the qualified individuals are just going to say, hey, I'm not interested. Right. Like it's not worth it for me. So they're just going to get whatever they get. Well, Um,
1: I do have to give you a nod because I know you kind of said that you're the unpopular opinion, but Mm -hmm. I don't think so at all. I think that we are honestly on the same page of where we just want good patient care and we want what's best for especially us coming from the same NICU background that you do bring suits against we we all still just want the best for those babies so I don't I don't think you're an unpopular opinion I think things happen and when there are damages they need to be addressed but I don't think that Makes also you, the bad guy. you know
0: how we can do better right and i think today marley thank you so much mm-hmm. for all of your insight because to be honest i think this just really gave a good global view of you know yeah. one what you do how we can do better how to address these things i think you know this is a time where we all of our attention is on this topic right now especially right. all of us in the medical field so this was a really great episode it was so valuable honest, for our listeners i really do think we we would like to, uh, we're going to do a round two with you we'll do another round maybe okay. in the next quarter we'll, we'll we'll powwow with you to see yeah. what we
1: didn't get to that especially that right. you feel like yeah. you could shed more light on because yeah. i think well, it's well, just so
0: much
2: it's,
1: it's so much to cover it's such a big world
2: <laughs> right it's such a it's so much to unpack there's just so much there and um you know i'm just so happy to be here I'm, I'm i've always been someone who's you know i i think for me as a lawyer and and hopefully you'll see that through my instagram handle is like i'm trying to do things differently you know there's um that's why we like a lot of the same yeah a lot of the same old same old when it comes to lawyers out there and um I take it very seriously and and I I again I have a tremendous I have a tremendous amount of respect for the medical professionals who care for you know the children and the families that I represent after these Mm -hmm. horrific uh you know tragedies occur so um I know that you know they don't get where they're going to afterwards um, without without the the care and mm-hmm. nurses especially. I mean, I literally during my labor. I think there was like a come to Jesus moment with my nurse. I was like staring her. At, you know, I was like my husband was. Who knows where my husband was? Right? I'm like, oh, he's somewhere over there. And I was like looking. I like locked eyes with her. And afterwards, I'm like, you guys are you know at least they angels to me. So um, I'm happy. I was happy to be here. Yeah. Where can everybody find you? Sure. So you can find me at my um, website, which is lerowillerlaw.com. But I'm really um, a lot, very active on Instagram and that's at birth injury law. And yeah, I'm happy to answer questions. I love talking to everybody. So,
0: you know, we're starting more conversations. I think this is great. We just appreciate all of your time. Thank you. This is so empowering for nurses to understand
1: other side of the coin yeah, yeah. for sure
0: yeah for sure. thank you so well much, thank you for Molly. your time today um, thank you
1: okay that was oh like honestly Jeez. we have to have her back because there's yes. so much more and i think you guys are probably gonna have a lot more questions but I know she's I so well spoken and gives such a good different perspective for us that I think is going to make us better
0: also I will say this too, you guys before we were recording Sam I was trying to like explain things to Sam in terms of what I thought and it's so interesting because I feel like I she just breaks things down so well and I didn't under, I don't understand a lot of things in terms of legal and you know what that implies for our, our And I think I have an profession. attorney in my family. Yeah, and so I when don't. you were trying
1: to like say things I'm like girl. Yeah, and I just I'm like I don't know. So then I think it made me kind of aware of that maybe I have more of an understanding yes. than most people cuz I just thought that what I knew everyone knew.
0: Yeah. And I but- mean I have had situations where I've needed lawyers so I will say that <laughs> but I'm still not familiar with lawyers in general so anyway i we hope you guys enjoyed this episode we're going to link all the resources there in the bio for you i definitely do think uh, down the line we'll probably do another episode with her we love her so much make sure you guys drop an emoji should we do the um the The gavel the gavel let's do the gavel on this week's post court Um, adjourned court adjourned thank you so much you guys for listening make sure you're following us on our insta that's at c-e-l-l-f-i-e underscore podcast you can find everything there linked in our bio all of our sponsors our partners your savings all the goodies there
1: and please leave us a review we've honestly gotten so many amazing reviews lately like honestly in the last two or three weeks um, it's I been overwhelming am, yeah. and it warms my heart. So
0: I love you. Thank you so much, you guys. Seriously, like this is why we're doing what we're doing. We are so thankful for you. We love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But if you do leave a review, just make sure you include your Instagram handle so we can send you
1: a little goodie bag full of all our stickers and pins and all that awesome stuff. And if you are on Spotify, we also appreciate dropping those five stars for us there. Absolutely. And make sure you're following us on our Insta. That's at Nurse Tori. And at hey Samantha with two A's. And we will see you next week. Ooh. Bonus. It's right? Friday. Yeah, I <laughs> don't even know what date it is anymore. <laughs> Bye. Bye.